0: Hi, welcome to the Quipster Film Review Podcast. My name is Vince Leo. I am the author of the film review website, Quipster.net. I've been doing film reviews, well, it looks like it'll be 25 years this year, since 1996. You can find all of my written work at my website, Quipster.net, Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. While you're there, I do encourage you to look for the link for my other podcast, that looks specifically at films from the 1980s. It's called Around the World in 80s Movies. You can find the link at my website, quipster.net. Today, I'm gonna be getting into a film brand new for 2021. It's called The Little Things, and it's appearing in some theaters as well as debuting on HBO Max concurrently. It's an R-rated film. It does have violent and disturbing images, language, and full nudity. The runtime is two hours and seven minutes. Denzel Washington is the main star. Rami Malik, Jared Leto, Michael Hyatt, Chris Bauer, Terry Kinney, and Natalie Morales are in this film. The director and the screenwriter is John Lee Hancock. So, The Little Things finds writer director John Lee Hancock directing this mystery thriller screenplay. He's kicked around this idea for a few decades, in fact. The origin of the story began back in 1992. And that was when Steven Spielberg, he had read the script at that time for A Perfect World, and Spielberg loved it. And so he contacted Hancock to collaborate on some sort of future project together. So they entered into this blind option deal with Warner Brothers to come up with a new project. They didn't know what it was yet, but Hancock was at that time in a three-picture contract that included A Perfect World. And after some back and forth, Hancock, uh, a screenwriter with a law degree who loved crime dramas he came up with this outline for The Little Things. Hancock wrote The Little Things in reaction to a lot of the crime dramas that he had been watching throughout the 1980s. And he felt, you know, all of these cop thrillers, they were becoming very predictable. They were only really interesting at the beginning when we don't really know what's happening. And by the third act, all of the pieces, they are put into place and then we end up with this extended chase sequence or a shootout, and we see the good guy kill the bad guy, it pretty much happened as expected each time out. And he was, it was becoming very tiresome. He thought there should be something to break out of that mold. So Hancock wanted to make a film where audiences would not know what's going to happen right down to the very last shot. The little things he envisioned would avoid predictability because we would go into that ending not knowing whether the bad guy is really bad or maybe if the good guys are really good. He wanted the story to stay unraveled rather than to try to tie things up, and he felt that it should be, if he did it right, just as satisfying for the audience to watch as any of the other films that tie things up. They might be even more engaged by that point. Well, Spielberg liked that script. He liked it a lot, but he was not, at that time, in the right frame of mind to take it on. He was just finishing up on Schindler's list, and it was very taxing on him emotionally and spiritually. He needed something that was not another dark and depressing film. So he passed on that. Now, in 1995, Clint Eastwood, he had directed Hancock's A Perfect World, and Eastwood decided that he should maybe direct and star in The Little Things. Matthew McConaughey and George Clooney were thought of as perhaps being part of the movie, but eventually Eastwood scrapped that and he roped in Hancock to work on a different project that he wanted to make, Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil. In 1996, Warren Beatty expressed interest in making The Little Things. He met with Hancock several times over the course of a year. They would go to lunch, they would go over the script, talk about whatever he wanted, but they never did proceed beyond just talking about it. By 1997, Warner Brothers was looking at letting Danny DeVito direct, and he was going to cast Robert De Niro as the star, and it looked like it was going to get made, but somehow things just fell through. Other directors called about the possibility of making The Little Things, including Dean Pariseau, who producer Mark Johnson had worked with for Home Fries and Galaxy Quest. He was the producer also of The Little Things, but one hang-up was always the ending. A studio exec there at Warner Brothers said, that seemed to be a constant issue. Hancock, though, was not willing to change the ending because that was the entire point of making the movie. So things continued to progress a few years. In 2002, after the success of his debut Hollywood feature for Disney, John Lee Hancock, he became more than a screenwriter. He directed The Rookie for Disney, the baseball drama. Mark Johnson then encouraged Hancock to direct The Little Things himself. But Hancock and his wife were taking care of two young twins at the time. And this seemed like the sort of subject matter that may be too dark to have on his mind every day for two years as he started to make this film. So every couple of years, Johnson would ask again, but it always just never seemed to be the right time for Hancock to continue. Now, after Johnson's kids eventually left to go to college... Hancock was not only asked by Johnson, but a couple of other creative friends within a three-month period, Scott Frank and Brian Helgeland. They separately contacted him and encouraged him to make The Little Things finally. They thought it was a great script. He should put it out there. So at that time, Hancock decided to give it a serious look. And as he read, he took to rewriting some of the dialogue and reimagining some of the characterizations that he thought could be a little bit better. But most of what remains in the final script is how he wrote it back in the 1990s, including the setting. He was gonna keep the setting back in 1990 before cell phones, before modern forensics, before DNA analysis. That way he could keep the script intact without having to try to incorporate a bunch of modern detective techniques. So this is set in 1990. The main character is named Joe Deacon, AKA Deek. He's this burnt out deputy from Kern County, California. He's played by Denzel Washington for this film. Deke had left working the spotlight of high-profile murder cases five years ago for quieter pastures, sacrificing that spotlight, but also his family in the process. Rami Malek, he plays Jim Baxter. He's the new hotshot homicide detective for the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department on top of the case to catch this serial killer who's been brutally slaughtering young women. Now, Deacon has a knack for visualizing crime scenes and cracking cases by observing the little things, the seemingly unimportant clues that lead a serial killer to eventually get caught. However, Deke's reputation of following his own guidelines rather than the law has earned him a bit of a reputation, to say the least, especially as events of his past have haunted him to ruin. Deke travels to LA to deliver evidence for a case from Bakersfield, but he finds himself drawn into doing additional legwork off of the clock because of the similarities between the current murders from a serial killer and the one that he had been working on back five years ago when he was last in Los Angeles that precipitated his exile. The arrogant Baxter, played by Rami Malek, initially dismisses Deacon as some sort of loose cannon distraction, but eventually he finds that there's a method to Deacon's madness that could be an asset to cracking the case Their clues eventually lead to this appliance deliverer named Albert Sparma, played by Jared Leto. Although Deke and Baxter are not quite sure if Sparma did the deeds or if he's merely drawn close to the case because he's some sort of fanatic for serial killer crimes and he's intrigued as being thought of as the suspect. However, demons that plague Deke seem to be infecting Baxter as he too begins to obsess about this case. There's a lot more to the story than that that I'm not letting on, so... There's not really going to be any spoilers here. And if you see the film, you know that I can't quite spoil the film very much. Now, the cast here is bolstered by three Academy Award-winning actors, of course, Denzel Washington, Rami Malek, and Jared Leto. Now, Washington here, he's he's always excellent in pretty much every movie that he's ever done. And he's here delivering another excellent internally conflicted performance, this aging, deeply troubled cop. He's so obsessed with trying to do something selfless that ultimately becomes somewhat self-serving. Deke believes that he is the only one who can do the victim's justice, kind of a, a savior mentality, an angel. There's a lot of religious overtones to the film as you watch his progression through this. Hancock, who had a friendship with Denzel Washington after they had worked closely together while Hancock was script doctoring for films Denzel was in, like Safe House and The Magnificent Seven, Hancock immediately thought of Washington as the top choice to play deacon. Washington, he was skeptical about playing another cop, but he accepted after he read the script. He found the script an absorbing read and something that was altogether different than anything he had done before. he had never portrayed a cop that was scarred or who had lost his faith. So this presented this opportunity to show somebody who is on this spiritual journey to do what he feels is right. Washington also started to do some research. He drew inspiration from watching this reality show on A&E about detectives, and that was called The First 48. He became very hooked on this show, as well as the antics of the detectives, especially their tenacity and what they had to do to solve their cases. Now, for the co-star, Denzel and Hancock settled immediately on Rami Malek. Malik had just recently shined very brightly as Freddie Mercury in Bohemian Rhapsody. And what really intrigued them was that Malik's personality was very different from Denzel's, and that would make for believable friction for their characters that would work well for this movie. Malik instantly accepted the role because he really wanted to work with Denzel Washington. And just like Baxter does, the character with Deacon in the movie, Malik used his time with Washington to pick his brain on acting and his philosophy on staying dedicated and very passionate about what he does. Hancock knew that he had a very capable cast coming together, and he worked with these actors extensively to try to shape their characters. And once it got to the point where these actors seemed to know their characters even more than Hancock did, he allowed them the free range that they wanted to improvise whenever they saw fit through each scene as they shot the film. Jared Leto, he's somebody that Hancock had met a few years before. Leto actually reached out to Hancock after seeing Hancock's film, The Founder. Jared Leto thought that this was a great American movie, and he wanted to work with Hancock, at least in a future project. So Hancock kept him in mind ever since. And here, he thought, well, maybe Leto could play this guy, Albert Sparma. Now, Leto was interested in working with Washington and Malik in this movie, but he was also becoming at that time typecast into villain roles. He had done quite a few over the last number of years and he was tired of having his mindset stuck in the darker side of things. He wanted to do something a little bit lighter, but Hancock was able to convince Leto that he could actually be light and funny in this role because the character may or may not be villainous, but he's much more of a complex and fully rounded person who might be some sort of amateur detective. Maybe he's not the killer. So, Something very intriguing to Leto. I mean, Sparma here finding the notion that he could be the suspect, very tantalizing, enjoying the cat-and-mouse game between him and the detectives. Deacon Baxter become convinced that they have their man, but Sparma, he gives them enough to let them continue thinking that he's the one who did it, but not enough from an evidence side to out-and-out out arrest him for it. So Leto agreed to play this uh, another villain, or at least a villain type. If he could push the boundaries of this character into something where He could no longer see himself in the character. He developed a unique walk for Sparma, a look that includes a prosthetic nose, some fake teeth, brown contact lenses, different mannerisms, and a completely different way of speaking from what Leto typically does in life. And Leto even decided to give his character a bit of a paunch, because he thought that Sparma, he's kind of a foodie whose life revolves around eating food, and that ties into one of the clues surrounding the murders. Sparma's look, if you want to look at him, he fittingly could be viewed as either Jesus Christ or maybe even Charles Manson, and that further adds to the ambiguity between Savior, Jesus, and Killer, Charles Manson, so something that also hangs over Deacon because Deacon sees himself as both Savior, and we come to find out for reasons that we learn later in the film, a killer, Leto, to prepare for the role, studied FBI transcripts for the way suspects talked during interrogations. He also requested to not meet the other two actors until it was time to film. Only when he was in character during the scene did he meet Washington and Malik for the first time. So that way, when they first met, none of the actors knew how they were going to behave through the scene, which would add to the realism of that performance. Leto contributed details on what Sparma's obsessions were and how they changed his life to become the misfit that he is. Meanwhile, Denzel did some method acting of his own. He started to observe Leto on the set and off the set. He started to follow him around without him knowing it. Now, one of the themes that emerge from the little things is that tunnel vision is a danger. By spending so much time focusing on the little things, people begin to lose focus on the big things in their life, like their diet, or their family, or their home life, their health. To flesh this idea out, literally, Washington gained 35 pounds through this high-calorie diet of cake and milkshakes and butter pecan haagen and he also did as little exercise as necessary. During the shoot, Denzel began the process of losing that weight he had put on because he was going to shoot flashback scenes of a younger deacon toward the end of the shoot. Hancock made the determination That since there was only one main suspect there were shown in this film, that there should be enough evidence to lead the detectives to think Sparma could be the culprit, but also enough details that bolster the claim that he might not be. He could get off the hook if he wanted to. It's important to note here, though, that some of the clues about the killers, such as his car and his gait and his appearance, are things that we in the audience surmise because we see moments of stalking and perhaps killing that these detectives do not. hancock worked extensively with the film editor robert frazen to make sure that there were enough visual clues for us in the audience to determine we could take either side before the ending and a lot of their work went into what things that they should show and when they should show them and how long they should show them thomas newman's score i think is also a major asset to setting the mood and the tempo of this film Wistfully drawing us into the philosophical underpinnings of the character's actions, the the sounds go really well with Jonathan Schwartzman's roving cinematography, particularly stunning in the car sequences. The color schemes, the lighting—they're all top-notch. Hancock was inspired by the look of *The American Friend*, this Vim Vender's film from 1977 that uh, Hancock was very enamored with. He wanted to evoke the feeling of dread whenever necessary, using all of these techniques. Now, some are going to see traces of films of the 1990s in here. Seven, in particular, gets a lot of mentions when you are reading reviews of The Little Things, another signal that this story really hasn't been updated that much since Hancock wrote it in the mid-1990s. But what Hancock was doing then was actually envisioning The Little Things much more like a throwback to the more complex, character-driven cop films of the 1970s. Hancock loved these films of the 1970s, especially cop films that delved into the psychology, more of the complex character studies of the cops instead of getting into formula thrillers. So he really wanted to do something different here. Now, there are some elements here like the cop who gets into the mind of the killer such that it changes him into thinking so much like the killer that he becomes a little bit unhinged. You could certainly see elements of that in 1986's Manhunter. And the terrifying perspective of the first victim from another Thomas Harris novel, Thomas Harris wrote Red Dragon, which became Manhunter, Silence of the Lambs back in the early 1990s. Now, because of the COVID-19 pandemic, The Little Things had a very small theatrical rollout concurrent with the debut on HBO Max streaming platforms on January 29th, 2021. They were not able to, because of the pandemic, to have test screenings to see what worked and what didn't for audiences who were coming in cold. But they also thought that that might be helpful and not compromising their overall vision, because if those people complained that they didn't like not knowing exactly what was going on as they get into the third act, they didn't want to have to change anything to try to please audiences who embraced the formula they were trying to subvert. So while the murder case is a bit cliched in the way that it builds up, maybe because Hancock's material had been meant to be made back in the 1990s, and so much has happened in the realm of crime drama, not only in theatrical showings, but especially on television, that does a lot of what this film does and more. But I think it's for the accumulation of all of the little things, the little things that we love about movies, especially about performances, good lighting, good characters, great acting that works so well, that this little cliched film garners ultimately a recommendation for people who like these kinds of films. And for that, I will give The Little Things three stars out of four. Three stars on my scale means that I do think that this film is a worthwhile movie if you are into crime thrillers, certainly is trying to do something different, and it does succeed at what it sets out to do, which is to try to keep you guessing all the way up to the very end as to what exactly is going on. In fact. Even as the credits start to roll, you might start to have second thoughts about what you saw. Maybe even want to watch it again to see if you think you know what was going on all throughout this movie. So it's one of those kinds of movies that you might appreciate more on a repeat view. So three stars out of four, at least on my first time watch, is what I give The Little Things. Thank you everyone for listening. I hope that you enjoyed this look at The Little Things. If you have HBO Max, you can watch this today, at least up until I think the end of February. If you do see it and you have your own thoughts on this film you want to impart to me, you can find my contact information at my website. That's at quipster.net, Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. Leased to my Twitter feed, Facebook page, and Instagram and email are all there at that site, quipster.net. Until next time, thank you so much for listening and please enjoy your time anytime you get to go to the movies or you're catching a theater-worthy movie streaming at home.